to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3, we're going to look at several verses. We will start, use the springboard, <clears throat> into the text, verse 5. Wait for the pages to quit turning. I hear a few more pages turning. Like I told you before, I didn't learn a whole lot in preaching school, but they did. I did learn that. You're supposed to wait till the pages quit turning before you go on to something else, so... I'll wait for that. If everybody has 2 Timothy 3, let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we look at this passage of Scripture this morning, as we, with a desire, want to know, want to comprehend, and apply to our lives what Your Word says, I pray that we will focus on You and on Your Word. We will hear what You're saying to us this morning. Give me the clarity of mind, the strength of voice, and the memory that I need. And I pray above all, you would be glorified and Christ be exalted. In His name, amen. Let me ask you a question this morning. You may have saw the title to the message. How many of you have ever suffered from motion sickness? few of you? Yeah, I have too. Uh, Marcia and I, years ago, we took a cruise. Matter of fact, she was about, how many months pregnant? Five months pregnant with which child? With the first one, that's a long time ago. <laughs> anyway, hey, give me a break. Sometimes I can't remember my name until about 11 o'clock. Anyway, we were on a cruise. I'd never had motion sickness before, or traveler sickness, whatever they'll call it. She's pregnant. I get deathly sick on the cruise. She's like, come on, let's go do this. We're going through what they call tropical depression. I'm from Oklahoma. We call that a storm. And uh, needless to say, I thought I was going to die. Matter of fact, I think I prayed to die uh, that night. But So I've had, I've had that one time. Uh, it's not a pleasant experience. I remember coming back from Israel uh, on one of my frequent trips, walking back and forth to the restroom on that plane because if you get up on a crowded plane, there's just one place to go to and come back. I mean, it's, it's not like you're going to go shopping or anything. So on one of my trips to the restroom and back, I noticed a little gal sitting there in the seat and she was suffering from motion sickness. You say, how do you know, preacher? I'm not the smartest guy around. Realize I'm not a doctor. But she had one of those little bags in this hand and the other hand she had over her eyes like this. I kind of put two, to two, two and two together and figured out, oh, she's suffering from air sickness or motion sickness. You know, I found out that actually about 35 to 40% of people suffer from motion sickness, even in mild conditions like uh, in a boat on a calm lake. And I also found out that 65 to 70 percent of people suffer when the conditions are severe. So chances are that most of us either have or is going to suffer from motion sickness, from traveler sickness, car sickness, air sickness, whatever you want to you call it. Now, motion sickness is divided up in three categories. Motion sickness is caused by motion that's felt but not seen, like in a boat where there's no windows to see out. It's also caused by motion that's seen but not felt, like video games or TV or something like that. And it's also caused when the motion is felt 
and is seen, but they don't correspond together. There's a disconnect somewhere. You say, preacher, why are you talking about motion sickness? Because, folks, according to the Apostle Paul, in the passage of Scripture we're going to look at this morning, there is another type motion sickness, and it's spiritual motion sickness. I want you to look at verse 5. 2 Timothy 3, verse 5, the first uh, part of that verse, it says, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Now, folks, the word in the Greek for form is the word morphosis, and it speaks of having an appearance, having a semblance of something. Those to whom Paul's referring and talking about in this passage, they have an outward appearance or semblance of godliness. Simply put, Paul's describing people who have spiritual motion sickness. They're simply going through the motions of Christianity. They have a form, but no fire. They have pretense, but no power. Now in this passage, before Paul speaks directly about the condition of spiritual motion sickness, I, I believe he identifies the culture or the climate, if you will, that exploits or that, that caters to such a condition. And Paul, when you read this passage, he refers to this climate, this condition, these times, uh, in no uncertain terms. And I believe he leaves no doubt in our minds as what to watch for and expect. First of all, in our passage, Paul, he talks about a dangerous time. Look at verse 1, 2 Timothy 3. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Notice that word perilous. In the Greek, that's a pretty interesting word. It actually has several uh, different shades of meaning, several connotations to it. In one sense, the word speaks of violent, threatening, wicked, or, or dangerous. Uh, we get the sense that Paul, he's wanting to prepare the church for these dangerous times in the last days. These dangerous times that could and will result in persecution for the church. You say, how do you know that? Skip down to verse 12. He says, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now I admit, folks, while these characteristics uh, talking about here dangerous times, they've marked all time periods of history to some extent or the other, they are going to be intensified in the last days. Now that I've said the last days, let me tell you something, and many of you heard me say it before. I've had people ask me all the time as a preacher and a pastor, they'll say, uh, Brother Jim, are, are we living in the last days? Absolutely. Folks, we've been in the last days since Calvary. Do you realize that? Since the cross, we've been living in the last days. However, I do believe that we're in the last days of the last days. I believe we're in the last hours of the last days. What Paul is talking about is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, in the last days, perilous times shall come. Now folks, I think it's safe to say we can describe the times in which we're living today, we can describe them as perilous. Do you not think so? I mean, think about what we're seeing all around us in society today. We're seeing a world on the very brink of collapse. I mean, we're living in an age when it's dangerous for people to live for God. I mean, when, when society begins to call evil good and good evil, we have a serious problem. Folks, those who practice righteousness, those who live according to God's Word today, they're being called intolerant, bigoted, 
narrow-minded, Bible-thumpers. Like I said, I've been called all this. Uh, They're they're called uh, antisocial. We're labeled as radicals. While those who practice sinful, deviant lifestyles, they're praised and they're elevated and labeled as heroes in our society. These are definitely dangerous times that we're living in. But look at that word again, perilous, in verse 1. Not only does it carry the idea of dangerous times, but it also gives the picture, paints the picture of desperate times. See, this is a picture uh, of during those dangerous times. It gives the idea that people, they're going to be turning to and fro. They're going to be running here and there, not knowing what to do. They're going to seek many means, many ways, many methods to cope with the madness of the culture and times. In other words, people would be open for anything. Now we may wonder why why in God's plan, why does God factor in days like this for His plan and purpose for the world? Well, I want to remind you of something. God is not the author of evil. But know this, God has determined to abandon sinful man to His choice of His wicked life if that's what He so chooses. God says, you want sin? You want wickedness? You can choose that. I'll let you have that. And God does this as an effort to expose man's sinfulness and wretched condition. You see, folks, the condition of humanity and society in the last days, to me, and I think it ought to be clear to you, it's absolute proof that man left unto himself, he will ruin everything he touches. Man's been created in the very image of the triune God. Man is body, soul, and spirit. He's been given a mind. He's been given a heart. He's been given a will. Man has a mind to think and to reason. He has a heart which to love or to love with and a will to choose. But I assure you, and history has proven this, God's Word speaks of it time and time again. Left to himself, man will always use his mind to reason against God. He will always use his heart to love the world. And he will always, folks, choose wickedness over righteousness. That's natural man. I recently read something about our 40th president of the United States, President Ronald Reagan. Now, whether you like the man or not, I I think you'd agree with me. I think history is bearing out that President Reagan uh, may have been one of the greatest presidents since Abraham Lincoln. Now, I will say this, even though he's a great president, he had a philosophy that was somewhat askew. Because I want you to listen. On the wall of his barrel site are these words. And it's from a speech that he delivered when they opened up the, the Reagan, uh, Ronald Reagan Presidential Library. This is what he said. I know in my heart that man is good, what, uh, that what is right will always eventually triumph, and that there is purpose and worth to each and every life. Now, I'm going to disagree with President Reagan. Man is not good. According to God's Word, man is inherently sinful, wicked, and corrupted. Left to himself, again, man will corrupt everything he touches. Now, it is true, however, that right is going to eventually triumph. But it won't triumph because of anything man does. Right will triumph, good will triumph, because ultimately, that's what God wants. And God will get His way. I think you'd agree, Paul's words to this young preacher, Timothy, here, uh, they read like a current copy of U.S. News and World Reports. I mean, I think you'd agree, we are living 
in dangerous, desperate times. Times where people are resorting to all sorts of lewd and sinful, wicked acts to appease their own self-centeredness. You see, they'll do whatever they feel they need to do to achieve what they believe is right in their own eyes. Now because of the climate, the dangerous and desperate times, Paul reveals the conduct of those diagnosed with this spiritual condition, this spiritual motion sickness. So, hang on to your hat, tighten the saddle strap, because I'm going to cover these 18 characteristics, and I'm going to do it pretty quick. And I want you to listen to me. First off, Paul says, in the last days, there are going to be days that will be filled with unrestrained depravity. Notice, we'll start in verse 2. He gives description of the last days. He said, for men, notice, shall be lovers of their own selves. You know what he's talking about? These people he's talking about, they feel like the world revolves around them. Around them and them alone. They are literally setting themselves up as their own little God. Now folks, this is true. When love for self is elevated, love for God and others is denigrated. It's brought down. It's brought low. Now I want you to listen to me. I can prove what I'm saying, and this is taking place even in churches today, because, and I'm not picking on anybody, but go to some of the modern contemporary churches today and see what the trend is. The trend is for self-esteem, positive self-image, self-worth. That's what you'll hear behind the pulpit. You say, wait a minute, preacher, how do you know? You preach here all the time. You don't hear other preachers. Hey, there's a thing called the internet. Do you know it? I listen to preachers just about every day of the week. I guess I like all of them, but I listen to different preachers. And I assure you, you go to some of the contemporary, what they call modern churches, you're going to hear sermons about positive self-image, self-worth. You will not hear about godliness and about holiness and about the fact that we're to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow Jesus Christ. Lovers of self, Paul says, covetous. Instead of having things, things are going to have them. They begin to ignore God and worship their possessions. Then he uses the term boasters. They brag about what they have, what they've done. So they set themselves as the be-all and the end-all of other people's lives. Notice the next word. He says proud. I think that speaks for itself. Folks, pride is what leads unbelievers to hell eternally and it's what keeps believers from enjoying contentment and victory in this life. Blasphemers. He says blasphemers. These are, are those who speak evil of God, of His children, and of God's works. Now, and let me take it a step farther. Have you considered, have you thought about how the rise of obscenity and profanity that's used in our culture today. I mean, it's everywhere. It is prevalent everywhere. I was in a restaurant uh, some time ago with another preacher. And a couple of guys sat behind us. They were not, not quite my age, a little younger. But the language was unbelievable. And, of course, I turned around and cut my eyes at them. And, and uh, I was told, I need to mind my own business. And I was told, Willis, I'm fixing to make this my business. Folks, I've said this so many times, I want you to listen to me. If you cannot express your thoughts and articulate your thoughts without profanity, all that does is show how stupid and ignorant you are. That's it. 
But think about the rise of it in society today. You know why that is? It's simple, folks, because men have lost respect for God, respect for themselves, and respect for their fellow man. So they think nothing about speaking evil against everyone and everything. Paul says blasphemers. Then notice Paul says disobedient to parents. Folks, this rejection of Christian values has destroyed the home today in America. It's destroyed the homes in churches. If children will not respect and obey their parents, who will they respect? I, I've seen it, folks, and I, in all my lifetime. And some of you are maybe a year or two older than me, so in all your lifetime. Have you ever seen a time where there's such disrespect of children toward parents or toward any authority at all? I've never seen it. Paul says unthankful in these dangerous, desperate times. In other words, no sense of gratitude for anything they possess. People, they're going to complain about everything and everybody. They, you know what? God's Word teaches us we're to be thankful. Look at the end of verse 2. He says unholy. That speaks of that which is profane. That's the state of heart when men lose all regard for decency and shame. People are governed by their own passions and they're blind to modesty, to decency, to purity, to righteousness. Even in the church today, there's no standards, no conviction, no spiritual morality. Nothing is held sacred anymore. Have we arrived at that point, you think? Then look at the beginning of verse 3. He says, without natural affection. That, that simply describes a breakdown, folks, of the family. There's a, a loss in love for those who we should love the most. That's what Paul's talking about. Think about the family in America today. There's issues with abandonment, with abuse, with abortion, infidelity. Uh, our society today, and sad to say, many who profess to be Christians and many churches, they have bought into society's idea about gay marriage being okay. Now, if you're here today and you say, I don't like this preacher, he's offensive at what he's saying, you take it up with the author, friend. All I'm telling you is what God's Word says. And I'm going to tell you right now, homosexuality is a sin. Gay marriage is wrong, plain and simple. So I don't like hearing that. Then I love you, but I suggest you find a church where you can like what, what they preach because I'm not changing. God's Word makes it very clear. He talks about, uh, uh, Paul says, without natural affection. Folks, listen. That means all natural loves are going to be lost in a desire to fulfill the basis, most perverted human excesses. That's where we're at. I mean, do you agree with me? Then Paul says, truce breakers. This refers to those who, who won't keep their promise. You know, when I was a kid even, I can remember that saying, a man's word is his bond. You know, my dad and grandpa were carpenters for years and, and run business doing carpenter work. And if they shook a man's hand, that's the way it was. That's no longer true in our society. That's no longer true, and I'll tell you something else. That word truce breakers, it also speaks to people who will not even try to agree on something. It gives the picture of those who are unyielding, and they must at all costs have their own way. That's what it speaks of. That attitude is prevalent in the church today, too. He says false accusers or slanderers. That, that's people who do everything in their power to destroy the good name and reputation of another. By the way, let me add this while I'm here on this point. See that word, the phrase false accusers, or your Bible may say slanderers? That's the Greek word diabolos. That's where we get the word devil from. 
Now the devil, he is a slanderer. So those who engage in destroying the good name and the reputation of another person, they're full of the devil and they're doing the devil's work. Look at the next word. It's a word that you see in the King James, but not other translations. It's the word incontinent. That means without self-control or the ability to discipline one's life. In other words, let me tell you the attitude Paul's talking about when he uses that word. It's the attitude of if it feels good, do it. It's the attitude of why should I deny myself the pleasures, the little pleasures of life. It's the attitude that says, you know, I have the right to be happy. I'm going to tell you something here. I'm tired of hearing that. I'm tired of hearing it. Let me explain to you. You know, people will will make sinful choices and say, I'm doing this because I have the right to be happy. Surely God wants me to be happy. No, friend. God wants you to be holy. Holy. He says, be ye holy as I am holy. Now let me explain something to you. People demanded their rights today. Do you realize the only rights that you have, that I have, that any person on this planet has, the only rights they have is the right to be judged for our sin and to be condemned to hell for all eternity. Anything other than that that we receive is by the grace of Almighty God. Now, I don't know about you. I don't want my rights. I want God's grace and mercy. The next word Paul uses, he says fierce. Folks, that's untamed, savage, and brutal. People will be controlled by their baser instincts. Do we not see this today in society? I mean, people are, are, are living, actually living and acting like wild animals. And then Paul says, despisers of those that are good. Again, in a world where good's called evil and evil's called good, those who stand for the right, they slap the face of those evildoers. And so because of that, they're gonna, those that take a stand along biblical lines, they're apt to be persecuted and hated. Look at the next word Paul uses describing these dangerous, desperate times. He says traitors, verse 4. People who betray others just to get their way. In other words, he's talking about people that lie, cheat, steal, crush anybody who dares to get in their way. Basically, people will possess no loyalty except to themselves. The next word he uses is heady. That means reckless, rash, acting without reasonable thought. That's a lifestyle that does as it pleases without regard for the consequences. In other words, it's a person who sees right here in front of their nose and they never stop to think about what's down the line. The next word is high-minded. I think that speaks for itself. Those who are puffed up with a false sense of their own importance. He's talking to here high-minded people who think they're better than what they are and better than anybody else, and they feel they don't need God, they don't need anybody. All they need is themselves. And then notice the last one. Paul says, lovers of pleasure. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Those who love the pleasures of this world more than God. Let me drive a point home to you. About a year ago, There was a survey done. Statistics showed that professing Christians in America, in this country, professing Christians, they spent almost $7 billion that year on films, entertainment, films, movies. They spent almost $14 billion on music. And professing Christians spent almost $7 billion, actually a little more than $6.5 billion, on video games. Now let me read you something J.C. Ryle, the old Angelican bishop, theologian, wrote many years ago. 
He said the average church member today does not allow church service to come between him and his pleasure. Prayer meeting, revival, church duties, they no longer interfere with social activities. Almost any preacher in this country would agree with this. For it is the simple truth that the average church member does not let church interfere with his social life, nor with anything he or she wants to do in the line of pleasure. In these dangerous, desperate times, Paul says, there'll be unrestrained depravity. But also, he says, there's going to be unrivaled deception. You know what, folks? When you read through the list that I just covered in verses 2 through 4, I think most of us automatically assume Paul's referring to this wicked, godless world. Right? Yet when you come to verse 5, and you really study that, we're enlightened to the truth that Paul's actually talking to the church about the church. Do you hear me? Paul's talking to a young preacher about the church and telling him, you need to watch for this. You need to be careful for this. Simply stated, what Paul's doing, he's speaking about apostates in the church. He's talking about pretend Christians. Look at verse 5. It says, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Imagine that. Here we got Paul. He spews forth all these evil folks, ungodly traits, everything we could imagine. And then all of a sudden in verse 5, he drops a bombshell. These people who claim that he's talking about, they claim to know God, they claim to be saved, and they claim to be on their way to heaven. They are suffering from spiritual motion sickness. They're simply going through the motions of religion. He says they have a semblance and appearance of godliness on the outside, but there's no life-changing power on the inside. And as a result, who they are will eventually be revealed by what they do, by their choices and their lifestyle. Now what Paul's talking about, these people that suffer from spiritual motion sickness, Folks, they'll profess God. They'll profess Christ. They'll be baptized in the faith. They'll attend worship services. They'll participate in rituals or ceremonies. You know, they may quote some creeds, uh, some songs, maybe even some scripture. Well, I want you to hear what Spurgeon had to say. He said they use a great deal of religious talk. They freely speak of the things of God in Christian company. They can defend doctrines of scripture. They can plead for its precepts. They can narrate the experience of a believer. They are fond of talking of what's going on in the church. They flavor their speech with godly phrases when they're in company that will relish it. But it is all an empty shell of a tear. That's a weed taking the form of wheat. In other words, folks, uh, these people Paul's talking about, they have religion in their head, but they have no faith in their heart. It's all a show. It's a facade. It's a pretense. That's why they start out, when they start out like a, a blazing star, you know, a shooting star, but they end up like a, a water-soaked firecracker, a dud. They have a form, but no force. They have pretense and no power. They have religion, but they have no reality in their life. Listen to me. If there were Academy Awards for the church, these people that Paul is talking about, they would no doubt win the Actor or Actress of the Year Award. I mean, outwardly, they're marked by a show for God. But inward, they're void of the grace and the power of God. Why is that? Because they have never experienced the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And friend, their profession has left them where they were. Now understand me and understand me well. Friend, the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ 
will never ever leave a person where they were. It will make them a new creation in Christ. Allow me to quote Spurgeon once again. He said, Godliness is that which creates repentance towards God and faith in Him. Godliness is the result of a great change of heart and reference to God in His character. Godliness looks towards God and mourns its distance from Him. Godliness hastens to draw near and rests not till it's home with God. Godliness makes a man like God. Godliness leads a man to love God and to serve God. It brings the fear of God before his eyes and the love of God, I love this, and the love of God into his heart. Godliness leads to consecration, sanctification, to concentration. The godly man seeks first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and expects other things to be added to him. Godliness makes a man commune with God and gives him a partnership with God in his glorious design. And so it prepares him to dwell with God forever. Now listen to this. Many who have the form of godliness, they are strangers to this power. And so are in religion, worldly. In prayer, mechanically. In public, one thing. And in private, another thing. True godliness lies in spiritual power. And they who are without this spiritual power are dead while they live. Now friend, listen to me. If what you say you have has not radically changed your life. It has not given you a burning desire for the things of God and a desire to follow God's Word. It's not caused you to hate what you once loved and love what you once hate. And it's not created in you a passion to be all that God wants you to be. Then you, my friend, have spiritual motion sickness. You're simply going through the motions of Christianity. Those who have motion, spiritual motion sickness that go through the motions of Christianity, understand. They're imposters who have infiltrated the ranks of the church. As a preacher with some years behind me, some experience, I can assure you, of all people, these people here that Paul are talking about, they are the hardest people to reach. And they're the least likely to be saved. Do you know why? Because they hide behind works of nominal religion and their life of nominal religious works have insulated them from their true need and that is salvation in Jesus Christ. You see, deep down in their heart of hearts, these people Paul's talking about that are in churches today, folks, they believe like the world. They embrace and follow the world's standards. But they dwell among the redeemed. Jesus said they're tares among the wheat. And sad is the person's faith who wears the name of Christ but has never been quickened by the Spirit of life and never been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Notice the counsel Paul gives. Look at verse 7. I don't know of anybody who, who has some common sense who would disagree with the fact we're living in the last days. We're living in days, and look what Paul says. When people are ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, let me ask you, what are we as God's people to do? I mean, are we to cave in, back up, slow down? Are we to quit? Are we to surrender? Are we to succumb to the pressures of this world and allow this world to mold us into its system and its way of thinking? Sad to say, many churches, many denominations have done just that. Well, Paul gives us counsel to expel the darkness of our day. He counsels us on how to respond to those with spiritual motion sickness. Look again at verse 5. First thing he says is be isolated from them. 
having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. Notice that phrase, turn away. In the Greek, it literally means to deflect or to shun. Let me read you what John Phillips in his commentary said about this. Christians who know the power of God in their lives should distance themselves from people who don't, no matter what that person may profess. And regardless of the fact that the biblical doctrine of separation is out of style and out of practice today. Folks, I know what I'm saying here and what God's Word is teaching. I know that's contrary to the compromising liberal mindset of the day that thinks everything that wears the name of Jesus is of God and we should all just get along. Let me explain to you. You know why we're to shun those with spiritual motion sickness? It's because they're going to drag us down faster than we can pull them up. Look at verse 8. Here's another reason. It says, Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. There are two words. That I want to pull out real quick. That word resist, now I think we all know what resist means, but that word in the Greek means more than that. It's not just being against something. It means to be hostile towards something. It means to be hostile to the point that you suppress something. In this case, suppress the truth. And it says men of corrupt minds, reprobate. That word reprobate means morally reprehensible. It means in this verse of no value whatsoever concerning the faith. Now, let me be quite honest with you. Could the reason we're to turn away is because these people that Paul talking about, they've already crossed the line, they are hopeless, and they've been turned over. God's turned them over to a reprobate mind. Now, I know there are people, you don't hear much of this today, who say, oh, no, that never happens. I want to tell you something. There's a line that crosses the path of every life. And it's the hidden line, the boundary between God's mercy and His wrath. And if you cross that line, you're in hell. You just don't know it yet. You say, I don't believe that. What you believe has no bearing on reality. That's what God's Word teaches. Whatever the case may be of why we're to shun to deflect them. He says, stay away from those with motion sickness. In other words, what Paul is saying is, don't buy into what they're selling. Don't fall into their lifestyle. Don't get involved with their false doctrine and their unbiblical ideas. Now, folks, we get the idea that Paul is saying conditions that he's describing, they're going to get worse and worse before they get better. You say, how do you know? Look at verse 13. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, because of the perilous times, all right, and because of many who are throwing out and disregarding truth for error, Paul says, not only, Christian, are we to be insulated, we're, or be isolated, we're to be insulated. Look at verses 14 and 15. He says, but continue thou. Now, Paul is writing to Timothy, a young preacher of a church. But in turn, writing to the pastor of a church, Paul is writing to the entire church. And in turn, from there through the Holy Spirit, he's speaking to all genuine believers, all born-again Christians. He says, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned, and hast been assured of knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Verse 15. And that from a child thou hast known, now here's the important point, from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Church, listen to your pastor. 
when the old landmarks are removed and the rot and the decay are everywhere. When the enemy comes rolling in like a flood, the Word of Almighty God is the only sure anchor that we have. So we need to learn it. We need to love it. And oh God, help us. We need to live it more today than ever before. I want you to notice the word continue in verse 14. That word continue, it means to dwell or to abide in. It literally means to be at home in. And it's used over a hundred times in the New Testament. So listen, as wickedness and wretchedness and worldliness abound more and more, even in the church, Christian, we're to make ourselves home in the Word of God. We are to hold continually to the anchor of God's Word. We are to continue to guide and to govern our lives through God's Word. Not ideas. Not trends. Not what's popular. God's Word. Plain and simple. I'm going to tell you something. As the gale force winds and storms of heresy and apostasy blow all around us and beat on the church today, Christian, we're to hold to God's unchanging Word. It's the same today that it was thousands of years ago. We're to hold to God's unchanging Word. We're to keep on the firing line. We're to press on toward the mark. We're to climb to higher ground. Let me tell you something, Christian. In an imperfect world, the Word of God will make the child of God perfect, complete, lacking nothing. In a world that's unfurnished with truth, the Word of God will keep us thoroughly furnished in the truth. In the midst of a bad world, the Word of God, praise God, will produce good works. Now I want you to listen, friend. If you've just been going through the motions in your life, then stop lying to yourself. Do you hear me? If you've been living a lie just going through the motions, stop lying. Because if you've truly been saved, your life will be radically, dramatically, eternally changed. You cannot have a true saving relationship with Jesus Christ and continue thinking like and living like the world. It's impossible. Listen to me. If you have a, if, if your worldview is a worldly worldview, you say, what do you mean worldview? I mean the way that you view life, the way that you live your life, the way you view things around you. Is it according to the world standards? That's a worldly worldview. Or is your life according to biblical standards? That means that every decision you make, the way you live your life, the way you view the world, the way you view others, the way you view everything is filtered through God's Word. There's only two worldviews, either a worldly worldview or a biblical worldview. Friend, if you have a worldly worldview instead of a biblical worldview, then may I be totally honest with you. If you have that worldly worldview, then one of two things is true of you. Number one, you're lost and you're on your way to hell. You've never met Jesus Christ. Or number two, you're a very immature Christian. Either way, you need to be right here down front at this altar this morning in just a few moments. If you don't know Christ, you need to repent of your sins, quit living a lie, and give your life to Christ. If you are a Christian, and you have been as a Christian going through the motions, you need to repent of your sins, and you need to ask God to restore you again and to make you useful 
for his kingdom. Now, if you're here, you're a born-again believer, no shadow of a doubt, you've been living for Christ, well, let me ask you again, what are we to do in a world that's getting darker and darker by the day? Folks, we're to keep fighting the good fight of faith. That's what we're supposed to do. We are to hold high the blood-stained banner of the cross. We are to learn to love and to live according to God's Word. According to God's standards. Not the world's standards. I want to close by reading you a poem. It was written to preachers. But I think it applies to all Christians. It says, if you're preaching from the Bible, well, preach on. If you're longing for revival, just preach on. Preach on sin and condemnation. Preach for sinners His salvation. Preach to Christian consecration. But preach on. If your sermon's from the Lord, then preach on. Never mind if some look bored, just preach on. If the devil looks down on it, if the critics frown upon it, many souls depend upon it, so you preach on. If you step on someone's toes, preach on. Take the bull right by the horns and preach on. Even though they may not like it, even though some try to fight it, where there's wrong, God can right it, so preach on. Let not time be a restriction, just preach on. If a sinner's got conviction, then preach on. Christ can save his soul from hell, cleanse his heart, and make him well. Even if it's after 12, just preach on. From the law to revelation, yes, preach on. Christ, for every situation, all oh, preach on. Even if your members doubt it and say they can do without it, if you've talked to God about it, then you preach on. Think of Christ's own message clear and preach on. Therefore all who wish to hear, oh preach on. All are sinners, they must know that His blood did freely flow. He can wash them white as snow. Preacher, preach on. In the Holy Spirit's power, oh preach on. He'll reward you in His hour, just preach on. Broken hearts and sins forgiven. Blessings here so freely given. And a crown up there in heaven. Oh preacher, don't quit. Just preach on. Listen to me, if you're a preacher this morning and we got some in here, then boys, preach on. If you're a singer, then sing on. If you're a teacher, teach on. If you're a leader, lead on. If you're a Christian, don't just go through the motions, but serve on, love on, witness on, and live on for the Lord Jesus Christ until He comes. Because listen to me, believer, the darker the day gets, the brighter we're to shine the light of the Lord Jesus Christ to this dark world. That has not changed. That has not changed and will not change. You're going through the motions or do you truly know Jesus Christ? Are you truly living for Christ? Would you bow your heads please?